Welcome to the I Will Teach You a Language podcast, weekly doses of language learning tips and motivation to help you become fluent in any language. With me, Ollie Richards. Hello. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the I Will Teach You a Language podcast. Today, I present to you part two of my conversation with Scott Young. And uh, we're going to be talking about his principles of ultra learning and how these apply to language learning. I hope you enjoyed part one. If you're coming to this new, then don't start here. Go back one episode and check out part one of the conversation because that will set the tone. Um, In this episode, we're going to talk about lots of things, including a lot about Chinese characters, actually. That comes right at the end of the conversation. But we also cover a lot of the material that we from his book that we didn't get to in the last conversation, particularly um, what other aspects of ultra learning are relevant to language learning. So um, things like, uh, for example, recall and how we, the importance of, of recalling what we've learned in conversation, the concept of directness versus drills in learning and um, and much, much more. Before we get into this part of the interview, I'd like to thank the sponsors of the show who keep the lights on around here, italki. Italki is a online it's a website, it's an online platform where you can find language teachers to help you along the way with your learning or for speaking practice or whatever it is that you want those tutors for. Can't really imagine what else you'd use them for, although I have come up with some creative ways to use italki teachers in the past. Anyway, if you'd like to get a free lesson, then italki very generously offer a free, it's $10 worth of free credit to all I Will Teach You A Language listeners, and you can claim that offer by going to IWillTeachYouALanguage.com forward slash free lesson. As ever, there are full extensive show notes that accompany this episode. Please go to IWillTeachYouALanguage.com forward slash blog to find the full blog post surrounding this episode. We have extensive show notes for you so you can look over and remind yourself of everything that we've spoken about. And um, I guess the only thing to say about that is if you're listening years in the future, then you might have to scroll down quite a long way on the blog page to find uh, this interview. But you can just instead type in um, Scott Young into the search bar on the website and I'm sure it won't be too difficult to find. So with that said, Please enjoy part two of my conversation with Scott Young. I want to stray slightly from the from from, mm. from the ultra working um, theme, but I'm just interested to get your perspective on it because you know I I think I so my background with languages is I've kind of I've been doing it a long time, so I've kind of been through the language learning process a bunch of times, and you know, by the time you hit your third fourth language, you just you know you know the territory, you know. So yeah. I've kind of just clawed myself up the, the language ladder if you like just step by step and in the last few years you know i've um i think partly because of you know my, my my website and wanting to wanting to create content on the topic of language learning and stuff like that i've done a number of language projects you know along the same lines as what you're describing there fast learning projects so, you know i went to thailand and i did a two-week thai um project last year I, I spent three months learning italian um and i've kind of i did it Partly, partly for me, but partly also because I wanted to yeah. document it and talk about the processes. But you see, the longer the, I hate saying the older I get, because it makes you sound so sort of from I don't know grand or something. But the <laughs> um, the more time I spend doing this, I see I had a different problem starting to emerge, which is like you know, take the case of uh, of Italian. I got very good at learning a language in three months to the point where I can kind of have a conversation and stuff like that. Yeah. 
it's what happens afterwards that I am that I struggle much more with because you know I let's take the case of of Thai and, and, and Italian two languages which I you know, worked hard at and I kind of thought before starting those projects oh you know once I learn them I can just even if I don't reach a high level I can just maintain them and speak to people around London where I live and and, and all these different things yeah but inevitably once the kind of glamour of the and excitement of the project wears off and you're kind of faced with the kind of cold hard reality of right now I've got this beast that I have to actually maintain and work at yeah you know more and more I've just been letting these languages fall away because the because I move on to other things I want to spend my time on so my question is I guess what I want to ask you is how do you from the ultra learning mindset how do you think about the problem of the much more difficult problem I think of maintaining and gradually improving a language into the long term which is not just a case of a few it never, there's, there's no ending it's yeah. not just a few years it's the rest of your life so what, how do you just think about that you know what is so funny because uh, we were talking before this started about how um uh, you had uh you had not had a chance to read this book because i guess the copy never got sent to you or this kind of thing <laughs> yeah. and it's just the fact that you're like just teeing up whole chapters that i've written is just like you know the synchronicity of the thinking is like well what do you do about this problem it's like well as in chat no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no i'm really looking forward to reading it now i have a whole principle on retention and i think what you're saying is absolutely right now we're talking about how do you first get to a level where you can have a conversation because most people that's their stumbling block right yeah so this is a little bit of like a rich man's problem right like it's a little bit like this is like this is first world language learning problems like well i've learned so many languages how do i maintain them all right it's it's a different problem from someone who really wants to start speaking however i completely agree with you maintenance is is a real pain in the ass for learning languages and i think it's particularly troublesome because um the assumption i think of a lot of people is that once you learn it you should know it forever and that's just not really how the brain works that we are constantly forgetting things, especially things that we're not actively using. And so for me, I was, uh, I kind of had, again, this is like, I've learned all these things through making mistakes in them. So I, all of my principles are like, well, I did it the wrong way first. So now this is the right way. And for me, one of the things is that I had done projects, including French, and I didn't have any maintenance strategy. I had no like post learning it strategy for what to do with these languages and, or, or for these subjects. And then you find like, you know, six months or a couple of years later, you're like, oh, wow, it's super difficult. Oh my God. Like I, I spent so much time learning this and now I can't use it. And so for me, I knew two things. I knew one that I, I wanted in this short period of time, you learn four languages in one year. It's super intense. Therefore, it's also going to be forgotten super quickly. Like that was one major worry as I was thinking, you know, if I just didn't want it at a time, maybe there would have been a little bit of like, you know, trail off of practicing it, you know, if I'd just gone to Spain, but we went to four countries. So there was a lot of like, even, you know, you're learning Spanish and then immediately it's Portuguese, like you're immediately switching gears again. And so I knew that it was going to be a problem for the project. And the second thing is like you said, like I'm doing these projects publicly on my blog. So I don't want to be like six years later. Oh yeah. I can't speak any of those. Like that was a fun project, but I can't do any of that anymore. And so one of the things that I, I tried to do was setting up a very deliberate strategy for maintaining it. So for me, what I did is I spent, um, uh, I spent about like half an hour per language per week in the beginning using um, italki, just italki.com and just using setting up a tutoring session to just have a conversation. And I think for the first year, I was once a week with each of them. And then that's uh, pretty the, good for a whole year to keep that up for a whole year. Second, yeah, second and third years, I was uh, doing it 
probably once a month per languages. And recently I've been doing it more sporadically, but I found that taking that taper off kind of, of the practice has made it much better. And so, you know, we can, we can talk a little bit more. There's other retention techniques, but I think that's pretty important. Okay. So we've, we've covered a a couple of, a few different um, aspects of language learning. What, What are some of the things in your ultra learning framework that we haven't mentioned that would be helpful to the process of taking on a new language yeah, or improving yeah. so, so a good example like I, I mean I've, I have these kind of nine principles so there's there's tons of stuff like I, this has been my life for the last decade so I, I really tried to make it dense and include as much useful things but also things that you know were surprising to me even when I was in the research and one of the principles that I like when I made my little proposal for the publisher and I was like, I think these are going to be what the principles are. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. So I think these are going to be the principles. And there were a few modifications when you do some research and you're like, Oh wow, there's actually a ton of research on this. And one of the principles, which I hadn't considered, which ended up becoming in the book just because of how much research there is supporting this is this idea known as retrieval. And so the idea of retrieval is particularly relevant if you're going to be learning something in an academic setting Um, I think it's relevant for all subjects, but that's where it's like the strongest kind of contrast between what students often do and and what actually works. And so there's a really interesting study done by Jeffrey Karpicki and Janelle Blunt. And in this study, they took students and they divided them up into multiple groups. One of the groups they got to do a repeated review. So review, what that means just is that you have your text and you just read it kind of over and over again, or you keep looking at over and over again to study it. Very common method of studying, including in language classes where you write down all your words and you just look over your lists of words again and again and again. The other group of people, they got to do free recall, which means you read the text once and then you shut it and then you try to recall everything that was in the text or everything that you can recall that was in the text. And what they found is that after they did this, so before they did any testing or anything, they asked the students, how well did you learn the information? So how well do you think you studied? And the people who did repeated review gave themselves the highest marks. They said, you know what? I got this. I, I've got it. I, I know it really well. People who did free recall and other ads were like, oh man, I don't know this at all. Like I don't remember anything from the text. And what was interesting is that when you actually test them after, so when you actually do give them a test to see how much they actually learned, it's the opposite. That the people who did free recall score much better than the people who did repeated review. And what I find interesting about this is that it's a clear example of where our intuitions about what works and what's effective is very different from the reality. Hmm. And they actually have a very interesting scientific explanation for why this might be the case, why you might see this result. And the reason is that we don't actually have privileged access in our own minds to how well we're going to remember something. So you all know that you go to a party and someone says their name and you're like, oh, hi, I'm Mike. And then you're like, oh, yeah, I'm Mike. And then... And then like 20 seconds later, you're like, oh crap, what was his name again? And this is because when he was saying, Mike, you have no idea whether you're going to remember that information. That's not actually an ability you possess to know how well you're going to remember something. Instead, your brain substitutes it with something slightly different. And that is what they call fluency of processing. So if something is fluent, in this case, it just means that you can do it smoothly and and it's not related to fluency in terms of language. But if you can process something fluently, then you think to yourself, I've mastered this content. And if you read something over and over and over again, what happens is that you get more and more familiar with it. It becomes, oh yeah, I've seen this, I've seen this, I've seen this, and becomes easier and easier to process. And so you are substituting the ability to 
we call something with the ability to process it fluently. And so because you're processing it very fluently, you think you've remembered it very well, even though you haven't. In contrast, free recall, you're not processing it fluently. It's very difficult, right? It's very difficult to recall things from a text. And because of that, you are, you know, giving yourself low scores because, again, you're using that proxy. However, if you actually go to a situation where you're testing it, recall was the thing that you wanted to practice. That's actually very close to what you need to be able to do on a test. And the interesting thing about this is that it's, it's a kind of universal principle, even above and beyond this idea of directness or this idea of limiting the amount of transfer that you have to do. And so if you're going to learn any language, that should be one of the top priorities of you is not only making sure you're practicing retrieval rather than review. So you should be you know, doing whether it's flashcards, whether it's conversation practice, whether it's grammar exercises with the book closed, you should be practicing recalling things from memory. That's super important. But also the difficulty of which you recall things from memory and what are the cues that you use to recall from memory are also super important. So one of the things that I said about Duolingo that I don't like is that one of their main exercises is picking words from a word bank. Now, in a sense, this is a kind of retrieval. You have to figure out, okay, which one of these ones was the right word. However, what is this is essentially a recognition test, like multiple choice, is strictly easier than having to recall the word from with no cue right? So free recall. So there's a spectrum of difficulty from, I'm going to give you almost all of the answer and you just have to tell me which one to, all right, no hints. What's the answer? There is a spectrum here with various stages in the middle. And one of the uh, researchers, uh, R.A. Bjork has found that the more difficult retrieval is, the more valuable it is for long-term memory. And this seems to be related to the idea that just when you're actually speaking a language, you need to retrieve it from memory in context where there often aren't any cues to give you hints. So you only know, let's say, the English word that you want to say. You don't have any cues of like, well, it's one of these three, right? You're not doing a multiple choice exercise. And so the fact that, you know, Duolingo and these things tend to use this fairly weak form of retrieval will probably also mean that it will not only have problems transferring, but it also means that it's going to be a lot harder to really retain that information in useful context. So could to try and give this uh, to crystallize this in, in, in language language learning terms, is what you're saying the equivalence of is a good parallel of what you're saying, the difference between, for example, um, reading a sentence in the target language and being able to recognize it as opposed to having to recall what that sentence is from nothing, from say the English prompt and you having to recall that that sentence. In, or in other words, a flashcard, if you imagine a flashcard with the English on one side and the Spanish on the other, the difference between you being shown the Spanish and saying, what does this mean in English? And you being shown the English and say, right now, do you remember what the Spanish is? Is that so, Yeah, so I think in language learning, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because language learning makes the conceptualization of this a little difficult because okay. both both of the uh, span like so i would say target language to your native language and your native language to target language are actually both recall tasks um they're just different recall tasks right so if you're going from spanish to english for instance um you still have to recall the english words that match so it's still a retrieval act it's not the same retrieval act as so they are not mirror versions of each other. If you practice one, you may not be able to do the other. Yeah, my one is considerably harder than the other as well. Which Yeah, my um, tendency is to think that production is generally harder than um, listening because you are more familiar with the English words than the uh, target language words. So there is a asymmetry there in which mm. one is a more difficult activity. That being said, you know, I've had conversations with our, with our friend Ali Linye about Chinese, and he's made the claim 
before that listening in Chinese is more difficult than speaking Chinese, which again, if you follow this logic, that doesn't seem to make any sense because listening is a kind of strictly easier task because you have to recognize a word and translate it into the language that you know well versus the other direction. However, that doesn't take into account that when you are producing, you're usually producing from a much more limited range of vocabulary than you are when you're listening. So that there's a much higher chance, for instance, mm. that if someone says a sentence in like fluent native level language ability, that they will use words and terminology that are less frequent. Yeah, the tasks aren't the same there, are they? Because it, because yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think they're both important. So I would treat them separately. And I think the idea here is that when I'm talking about the difference between review or recognition versus recall, is that recognition would be like a multiple choice test or even easier, just, you know, people just have lists of like, you know, they wrote down a bunch of words on their notebook and then they just look over them and they're like, oh, right, you know, ablar means to speak and that's written on my paper right here. That's a recognition task. If you cover up one of the sides, you do have a recall task. You have different recall tasks. So again, this is getting a little bit into the kind of technical things, but I think this is really interesting is that what we're talking about when we talk about learning things, in my opinion, is very much we're talking about a set of cues leading to a particular set of knowledge. And so, again, if the cue is the English or the cue is the target language, you're actually dealing with slightly different learning tasks. So it's not just you're learning how to say this in the language. Mm. You're either learning to produce it, you're learning to hear it, and there, there's overlap there. So there is some transfer between those activities so that, you know, if you are speaking something, you could think about that time someone said something to you that they said that and they're like, well, what was that word they said? And then I can use that word. However, they're a little bit more different and separate than the kind of, um, you know, like we were talking about that sort of false analogy of the brain that it's just, you know, you're just storing data in your brain and you're just, you know, it turns out that actually retrieving things in the right situations is super important. And so in many ways, I think it's useful to view those as almost slightly separate learning tasks. You know, over the over the over the years, I've my approach to uh, language learning has changed a bit. So I, back in the day, mm-hmm. I would with my kind of language hacking hat on, I would um, yeah. I would approach a new language with the um, very much in the mindset of right, let's ex- go out and explicitly learn and memorize stuff. So when I first started learning Cantonese, one of my one of my languages, I would do a lot of work with flashcards, trying to. Ex- explicitly memorize stuff the idea being that you know if you can if you can bring memory techniques to play and you can use them to to effectively acquire retrieve and recall bits of information then you can quite reliably um move your move your your at least your 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 degree of knowledge in the language up you can you can learn the language the components of the language um, fairly reliably, but one of the shifts that, that I've gone through recently is I, I, I've found limitations to that in the sense that it just kind of comes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the discussion about about language learning being um, so much more of a, um, of a holistic task, almost like a skill, and so that if if you spend too much time on discrete pieces of information what you're actually doing is you're forfeiting time spent with the whole language, which, although it's slower, less tangible, but much, much harder to actually grapple with and engage with and break down into learning tasks. Actually, over time, through the quantity of information, you are actually going to overtake, a bit like the tortoise and the hare situation. You know, the tortoise overtakes the hare over the long term. 
And so now I really approach new languages with a, with a slightly slower but more longer-term perspective of saying, right, I'm going to take a quantity over quality approach, and I'm going to mm-hmm. sacrifice a bit of quality um, at the beginning in, this, in service of getting as much exposure as possible over time. So I was wondering if there are, I think this is my endless fascination with the parallels between language learning and other, other disciplines. Are there any other disciplines or skills that you can think of where that kind of approach of actually let's maybe forego a bit of the detail now and get and learn through mass exposure over time. Are there any other disciplines where that sort of, where, where those dynamics apply? I would say that's the rule rather than the exception. So what you're talking about right here. So I mentioned one of the principles of this book is directness. And we kind of talked about a little bit of the research behind transfer and, and why I think this is important. And there is an interplay between what I call directness and drills. So drills are essentially isolating a cognitive aspect of the task you're trying to master. So this could be like if you're a basketball player doing layup drills, or if you are you know, a musician playing that tricky part of a piece as opposed to the whole song. Drills are a very important part of learning. And so I don't want to suggest that you know, the best way to be a, become a basketball player, for instance, is to just play basketball a lot. That will get you there. Like You're going to get good playing just basketball, but it's maybe not the optimal route to performance. And similarly, I think in language learning, there is a benefit to the kind of formal textbook flashcard style studying. I think that there is some, some value in that. Now, I think it's very easy to go overboard. And I think you're exactly, you're kind of having your like honeymoon phase and then your disillusionment with it. And I have the same thing. So I'll say one thing. I, when I use flashcards, I've like really gone to town with them. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't use them universally. So for instance, I don't use flashcards at all for any of the languages, even the ones I'm improving right now, just because I'm not at a point where I find them to be very helpful. And when I was learning Spanish, for instance, I didn't use flashcards at all. Uh, so when we were in Spain, I didn't use flashcards at all. I did use them a lot for Mandarin Chinese. And so yeah. what's the difference between Spanish and Chinese? And the reason is, again, I didn't really understand this at the time. It was just sort of a feeling it out. But now I understand what is the point of a drill. So the point of a drill is, in my opinion, twofold. So one of them is if the task that you're engaging in is too difficult for you to do right now. So if you're having a conversation with someone and it is unmanageable, like you are not able to actually execute on it, you need to actually break it into some pieces and learn those pieces first. So if I told you right now, okay, I'm going to give you a violin, go play in the symphony orchestra. You're, what are you going to do, right? You're not going to be able to do that. Like there is a sense that, okay, well, I'm going to try, but there's too much going on. You're not actually even approximating the thing that you need to be doing in that orchestra. So there's a sense that you do actually have to work on a simpler task. Now, languages, you can often do this organically by focusing on simpler conversational situations. So you don't have to start giving a, you know, thesis presentation for your doctorate in, you know, Japanese. You can start by, you know, saying konnichiwa and like having a very simple interaction with someone. On the other hand, uh, there are aspects of the conversation that might be irreducible. So you're not able to actually make it as simple as you'd like. And I found that in Chinese, because it had a different uh, linguistic background, a different vocabulary background, that when people would say a new vocabulary word for me, it would just, I wouldn't stick. There would be no hooks mentally for me to record all the knowledge that I was learning or all the things that were happening. And so I did find flashcards very useful for supplementing my difficulties. But again, I think what matters here is looking at what's the relationship to the overall task. So the idea was I'm having conversations in Chinese and it's overwhelming me to like, I can't mentally process everything that's happening. I can't remember any of the words people are saying. Um, I can't, you know, there's even simple conversations. I can't have this kind of thing. And so I have to kind of break it off and simplify it and work on some components. But then you're bringing it back to that kind of holistic activity. 
So the reason I think the holistic activity and the reason I think directness is very important is because, again, a lot of what you're actually practicing is not really obvious from the get-go, not just in terms of which words you're using and which ways you're pronouncing things, but just that communicating is this like extremely complicated, multidimensional activity. And so if you just reduce it to, well, you know, all these flashcards, I mean, you're probably missing 80% of what it actually means to communicate in this language well. And so you're getting really yeah. good at this 20%. And then there's this other, you know, so rolling 20%. <laughs> well, it, it can be very mm. useful to add vocabulary. It can be very useful to like when I was in Spain, I did grammar practice because conjugation is kind of, you know, okay, wait, I have to be yeah. able to, you know, past tense and wait, is it, is it the perfect past tense or? Like, yeah. I mean, I was referring to the, cause you know, 80, 20, yeah. often do the 20% of stuff that gets you 80% of the results. But in this case, it's the 20% yeah. of, of stuff that gets you 20% of the results. You know, think, this was, yeah, but yeah, we're talking, Oh, sorry. Just, just to add, cause you asked, how does this apply to other things? But I mean, almost all skills I think are like this, that you want to start with a mm-hmm. concrete application situation. And if you're going to do drills, if you're going to do study theory, if you're going to practice some sub skill, it should be with this interplay from that, that central kind of concrete example. So if you're programming, pick a project that you want to actually make, right? Yeah. Don't just learn a bunch of abstract computer science and then just hope a couple of years later you'll, you'll finally be able to do it. So languages are like that. Every skill is like this. This is really kind of a universal truth. Of yeah, it, remi- it reminds me of the, of the task of learning, learning Chinese characters, which I've kind of been doing on and off for <laughs> much longer than I would like to have been doing on and off for. But it's like this yeah. thing of a... You know, the, the, the task of, I don't know whether you learned any Chinese characters when you were doing Mandarin, um, but the, you know, the task of learning Chinese characters or, or Japanese kanji in my case, it's very easy and very tempting to break it down. And the, most of the methods that teach Chinese characters, they, they, you know, they, they do take the approach of right lesson, you know, learn the radical and, and then um, mm-hmm. learn the rest of the character. And then, you know, a lot of rote, rote copying it out. And then you learn the different pronunciations, et cetera, et cetera basically spending an inordinate amount of time on individual characters and then in order to properly learn them. But then, you know, I've had some conversations with some very smart people, um, or I should say some people who are extremely successful, who've been extremely successful at the task of learning Chinese characters and then actually using them to to communicate and use the language in the long term. Mm -hmm. And they all say the same thing, which is that, you know, ultimately none of this stuff matters unless it's existing in context. And so even if they, they, they even, they, they kind of, if you're pushing them, they would, they would even go as so far as to say that even the act of trying to learn individual characters and the component parts in a very uh, micro way. I mean, yes, you can learn stuff in that way, but really the only task that matters is actually going out there and reading real stuff and learning the characters in the context of the article or the text or whatever it is that you're learning. Even though it feels impossibly hard. Yeah. And even though it feels like it's something that's almost a complete waste of time because there there is such a gap between where you are and where you want to be in terms of comprehension. It's actually only through that most holistic of activities that you can actually start to get together the skills that you need to be able to process these huge amounts of information and make sense of them. Um, and so the, it, it just strikes me very much as um, uh, as uh, as what you were talking about there. Although you know, it's so funny because you're talking about Chinese characters. So this is like because I have a lot of thoughts. Because I've I've I will tell, you tell me it's in the book. No, 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 it's not in the book. Oh, it's, <laughs> I can talk. I could talk about this book for three hours, and there's still be tons of stuff that we didn't cover in the book. So I'm not worried about that. But the um, 
the thing about the Chinese characters, which I think is very interesting, because I've learned them because I didn't go to a, a like a school to learn Chinese. Because everyone who goes to school to learn Chinese learns it a certain way, and I did not. So I did not learn it that way. And so it's very funny because I have a very odd kind of pairing of abilities. So, for instance, I I um I was studying it very little just so that I could do the um, the HSK four when I was in China. This was like five years ago. But uh, I basically have spent very little time learning to write Chinese characters. So I um, right now I've been practicing for a while, and I would you know not just from the three months I was in China, but I would say that I'm able to read fairly fluently Chinese. I'm you know I've read a couple novels, and I don't I don't usually okay. need to, to read uh, Chinese, but um, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to write out like even simple sentences in, in Chinese with a pen. Uh, and uh, it's an example of, again, we're talking about those differences in the knowledge. So do I know Chinese characters is a very interesting question because it means in what way do I know Chinese characters? Because sure. I would be able to recognize and read fluently probably about 3000 characters and there's characters that I don't know that I'm able to guess how it's pronounced and guess how it's, you know, thing. But if you ask me, okay, could you write like some very, you know, one-on-one level sentences, I wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. I just wouldn't be able to do it. Like I couldn't even write like very simple things uh, in Chinese uh, with a pen. I can do it with the phone, but it was just for me uh, when I started learning it, it was, well, actually handwriting isn't super important to me. Like, it is something that would maybe matter eventually, but my goal for learning characters is I want to be able to read and I want to be able to, you know, chat with the phone and stuff and like, you know, Google things and like, so as long as I can use it with the pinion entry method, like I don't really care so much. And I find that very interesting because a lot of people, not to say that not learning right is bad. I think one day I would like to uh, be able to handwrite better because now at least at my point in Chinese, it's becoming a bit embarrassing, but um but when I was starting out, I think it's funny that there's so many people that they can't string together three sentences and they're doing handwriting drills. It just to me, it's like, yeah, yeah. ever ask yourself, what are you actually trying to do with Chinese? You know, like people just assume, well, the only way to memorize it is that you have to write out like every single character 400 times. I mean, yeah, if you want to be able to handwrite beautifully. I mean, that's what Chinese kids do in class because they have to be able to write with pen and paper and they already speak Mandarin as like their native language. But if you are a foreigner and you are trying to decide, okay, I want to have conversations with people, well, maybe don't learn characters at all. Like, and I know, I know there's some sinologists that recommend not even learning characters at all. I found it useful to learn characters because just for the mental mnemonic effects. Yeah. But even then, if you're learning characters, it's possible to learn to recognize characters fluently without being able to write them. And so these are just kind of different questions and different issues. And, and it's definitely a lot easier to learn to recognize uh, with like accuracy at the level where you could read fluently than it is to um, be able to handwrite them. It's probably about, I would say probably about two or three times as much work to be able to handwrite. Them. Yeah, it's interesting. How would you characterize your journey of say from let's say chinese character number 500 that you learned because that's kind of the first couple of hundred that you know they're fairly formulaic they're pictographic often how, how would you characterize that you're have you gone about getting to the point where you are now let's say 3000 from like 500 or early stage semi-early yeah. stage up to that 3000 what's how have you i guess so, maybe yeah. i could ask how have you applied the principles of ultra learning to that particular right, time right right so um, a lot of this work happened after I was in China. So we were talking about like, how do you maintain and, and grow your language? I didn't, never really got to this point, but Chinese was an example of like, I felt like I did fairly well for three months in China. So for those of you who are learning Mandarin, um, after three months, I wrote, the, wrote, wrote and passed the HSK4, which 
China says is equivalent to a B2. It's not, it's, it's less than a B2, but that's, that's their, that's their benchmark. But I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a fairly, you know, intermediate kind of test. Like you actually have to know a little bit of conversing and you have to be able to read. And you also, in my case, you have to be able to handwrite. Although I, I, I was very rudimentary for that section when I was doing the handwriting. So I, I didn't emphasize it that much. And the, uh, the feeling I had after that was that Chinese is great. I find it really interesting. I really liked my time in China. I'm not at a level of Chinese where I felt like I'm really able to do what I want to do in Chinese. Like Spanish, I kind of felt like, well, you know, I know I'm not perfectly fluent, but everything I want to do in Spanish, I'm able to do. So it's not, it wasn't, didn't feel like a huge amount of pressure to get to like a true bilingual level with it. Whereas Chinese, I was like, you know what? I want to keep learning it. So the first step I found is I had had this deck of Chinese characters. So I kept doing the Chinese characters with the flashcards. I probably did them a little bit long. So at that time, I wasn't as aware of the kind of graded reader strategy of getting into reading Chinese. And I did that a little bit late. So I was kind of, I think I maybe did the characters a little bit more than I would have otherwise. Um, and then I think the right strategy for going into reading Chinese is that I broke it down into first graded readers. So um, uh, I think it's called Mandarin Companion is a really good, very intro one. I've got a few on my, my bookshelf up there that are um, graded readers. Graded readers are good. Like if you know, let's say, again, like you said, a couple hundred characters. So you've done a little bit of practice initially and you want to start reading actual text. Graded readers are good for that, um, especially because they restrict the vocabulary. So you're not going to get stuck with things. Then after you go graded readers, I would suggest getting um, texts of books that you're actually interested in or native level material and uh, do it with Pleco's um, character recognizer. So you can get the uh, text reader application on Pleco. And then that way you can like load a web page or load like a TXT file of a book. And then you can just with a tap of your finger translate words you don't understand. So I how read... Do you get the, how do you get the book from... Do you take a physical book and scan it onto... Uh, uh, you have to find like a digital copy. Digital of the version. Mm-hmm. So um, for me, the one of the first ones I read was um, Liu Cixin's uh, Santi, which is hit like three body problem, which is like a famous Chinese science fiction novel these days. And that was one of the first ones I did. And I actually found the Pleco plus that was fairly easy because when I didn't understand a word if it was a scientific kind of word, it was something that I was like, I knew what that was in English. So when you type it and it's like, Oh, this is proton. And they're like, okay, that's, I didn't know what that was in Chinese, but now I do. And so I started there. And uh, so I did, I think at least one book um, on the Pleco so that it was just, you know, it was very fluid to do dictionary lookups when I wanted to. And then I, after I did that, I started reading books with uh, paper books with dictionary in hand that's more cumbersome and I would not recommend it if you don't yeah. have that. Like you should be aiming to like be looking up no more than like four or five characters per page. Because I think if your idea is that like, well, every sentence you have to look up like two or three characters, it's just going to be so tedious. You're never going to get through it. So um, I, I think again, like Pleco is good for that. Pleco could be good if you have to look up like a character per sentence because it's fast enough that it's still not too tedious to read and you can get to native level material. And then then reading with an actual book. And then, uh, and so I've read a couple of books now with just the book and the, and the phone uh, at the side. And now recently I've been reading it and I usually don't even look things up. So usually it's at a point now where if I'm missing a word, it's like, I know what's happening. Like, it's just kind of like, Oh, this is, this is some tongue you that I'm not familiar with, but it means something like this. And so just to, just to pause, just to press pause on that for a second then. So 
is there anything anything worth highlighting then about the activity of reading with the character recognition software and the actual process of learning it? Or is it just quite literally a, a question of like repetition and gradual iteration until yeah. you kind of recognize and quote well, know that, that the thing stuff? about learning again Chinese or, or 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 learning any language, it's kind of like this, but it, the problem is the goal activity you have. So we're talking about directness and this is a big principle, but the problem is, is that the thing you actually want to be able to do is too difficult, right? So the question is, how do you build that ladder, that staircase that will get you there in sort of useful ways, right? So we've already talked about there's not useful ways that you can do this activity that's not actually leading towards the thing that you want to be good at. And one of the ways in conversations and why I think conversations are a good starting point for learning languages, aside from just being that that's kind of what languages are at their kernel is, is conversational abilities and, and one-on-one communication. But that if you are starting at a, a conversational level, it's a lot easier to simplify that task. Because even if, if, especially if you're traveling and you're trying to do something, or you're trying to order food at a restaurant, you can often do that without knowing any of the language. You just like point to things and grunt and stuff. And so building your language from that ability, is it's easy to bootstrap it. Native level reading materials are not like that. Like native level reading materials are often way too difficult and there's no real easy access point. So for, for Chinese, again, it depends on your ability with the language. Like I found with Spanish, I could just go straight into native level media because there weren't any characters to recognize. Yeah. I didn't have to do the graded reader route. But for Chinese, I found that it was very valuable because the, yeah, again, learn a few hundred characters graded readers starting from level one, which are like super simplified and you can read the story and then do harder graded readers and then do Pleco with the document reader. And again, the document with the doc Pleco with the document reader is just to um, smooth the transition. So I don't think that the issue of like, again, if you just tap on the words, maybe that's not the ideal way to learn those vocabulary items. I'm not really talking about that so much as just, um, if you want to read, let's say, a, a, an actual book in Chinese, and you have to look up every word in, a, in an actual, you know, phone or, or even worse, like a paper dictionary, it's yeah. just a nightmare, right? So that's, it's the activity that allows you to actually engage in the task that you want to be engaging in ultimately. Mm-hmm. So it's like that stepping stone. Scott, I'm mindful of time. We've been, uh, <laughs> we've been uh, I mean, this is, I could just go on for hours. Yeah, but yeah. I guess um, there's so much more I want to ask you. We haven't really strayed from the language learning arena either, which is something for <laughs> next time, I guess. But yeah, next time we'll talk about something else. Yeah. yeah. Tell people, first of all, where they can find you, where they can find your work, right. and then also what, where they can um, get themselves a copy of Ultra Learning. So, yeah. So the I would highly recommend checking out my website, uh, scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. Uh, there I'll also have links to the book. So if you want to get your book, um, you know, it's going to be available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you get your books. If you're listening in the United States um, or North America, generally the book is going to look like this. There it is. Ultra learning. For those of you on the podcast, it's a green cover. Yes. It's a green cover <laughs> in the States in the uh, UK edition, which I don't have a copy of right now is a yellow cover. I'm not sure why they use different covers, but they do. And so uh, if you're sort of like, Oh, which book, they're both my book. It's just one of them. You know, they, they change the spelling a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But otherwise we, we use funny spelling. Yeah. And I think especially again, if you're interested in learning languages and you want to understand some of the principles behind effective learning, um, I think that this would be a good book. But also, again, language learning is just a, you know, we're talking about it a lot here. And obviously, it's a subject that's dear to my heart. But there's so many other uh, learning related things. So if you've wanted to, you know, approach 
learning programming or sports or improve job skills or all those sorts of things. Uh, I also talk about them a lot in the book and, and apply these same ideas and principles. So I think if, you, if you've if you listened this far and you're this interested in learning principles, then I highly recommend checking the book. Yeah, well, that was one of the um, that was one of the things that I noticed when I was just researching the book. Actually, in the in the introduction, I'm just trying to I'm just trying to pull it up here. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to find it, but of course, learning new skills actually it's not just for the sake of it, is it? Because you can actually use that to really make any change in your life you want, whether that's getting a new job, getting a promotion, becoming a happier person. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, this is really the art of learning itself, and I think that if you are serious about this again it's not just to learn frivolous skills although obviously i think there's no skill that's truly frivolous there's lots of useful skills out there but this is also if you want to get better at your career if you want to be able to master skills that will be you know rewarding in your life and and have great value to you this is sort of also the approach that i would recommend taking and so i think again a lot of people here are very interested in language learning so we've we've spent a lot of time talking about language learning and i could probably talk about it for another couple of hours yeah but I think, again, the, the point of writing this book was also to try to show what are those universal principles so that if you're approaching a new subject or you're approaching a new thing that you have, you know, you've never approached that before, um, this book will give you the roadmap. Well, listen, Scott, it's been, uh, it's been absolutely fascinating. Um, we're going to have to schedule a round two for, for some oh, yeah. time. But, uh, but until, until next time, thanks for your time. Thanks for, for all the insights. And, uh, I really encourage everyone to... Uh, pick up a copy of the book not because i've read it myself i confess but because i've followed your work for long enough to know that that anything that's in this book is going to be uh priceless so um, thanks again thank you so much thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast i really hope you enjoyed it and if you do enjoy the podcast then you're going to love some of the email courses that i've created these are completely free email courses which are written specifically for different languages and different levels I've spent years writing these things, so whether you are an intermediate Spanish learner or a French beginner or Japanese advanced, whatever it may be, I've got email courses that give you some of my best tips for learning those languages at different levels. So whether you're struggling with how to get started, whether you want to know how to understand native speakers when they're talking really quickly at you, whether you want to get better at learning grammar, I've got stuff for you that I send out completely free over email. If you'd like to get these tips, then please go to IWillTeachYouAlanguage.com forward slash tips. That's IWillTeachYouAlanguage.com forward slash tips, T-I-P-S, and I'll get them sent out to you right away.